All right, if you have a Bible, grab it. Open it up to Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table over here. It's our gift to you. Take it. Uh, If you have a Bible app, you can uh, open that on your phone. No social media unless you're posting something awesome that I said, please. Matthew chapter 10. We've been going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And let me just set this up. Oh, I should also say this. We've got a lot to cover and not a lot of time. So this is going to be like I'm just going to have to like skim a bunch of stuff here, okay? So we're going to move quick. So you got to, hopefully you had coffee or Red Bull or something so you can keep up with us. But Matthew chapter 10, let me just set up the context here really quickly. So coming out of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Jesus comes down off the mountain after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, giving us the constitution of the kingdom, right? Matthew chapter 4, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He takes the disciples and some of his followers up on the mountain. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, showing them or t- teaching them rather what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And then in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, he comes down off the mountain. He starts to put into practice like show you what it looks like when the kingdom comes to bear on a person, through a person, and you start to see people get healed. We start to see lives changed and transformed. We start to see outsiders become insiders, and we see all these beautiful realities of the kingdom of God starting to do what the kingdom of God does. And then in Matthew chapter 10, we kind of have another transition. If you were here last week, you heard Andrew preach, or two weeks ago, sorry, uh, you heard Andrew preach the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus takes his 12 disciples, and he's going to send them out on mission. And Matthew chapter 10 is what we call Jesus' missionary discourse, where he puts on display for us what it looks like to for us to now go out and live the kingdom life, to go be bringers of the kingdom message. And today what we're going to start to get into is what what it actually looks like to live out Jesus' mission. So Matthew chapter 10, picking up in verse 5, here is where this is going to start. These 12, the 12 that Jesus called, the 12 that he empowered, he sent out. Okay, so let's just stop there for a second. This is why it takes a long time to get through the Gospel of Matthew. So here's what we see. Jesus takes his 12 disciples, and I want you to notice something. It's really important. Really, really, really important. He sends them. He sends them. I don't know if you felt this already this morning, but there's this There's this sending nature to what it means to be a part of the church. There's this sending nature uh, for what it means to be a part of the family of God or the people of God. We see this threaded all through the scriptures, all through the story of God. God's heart has always been to, to have a group of people who he could send out on his mission. Even in Genesis, even in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve come along and he, he gives them the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to make more image bearers. This is what we call gospel saturation. This is why when we pray for the GLR folks, we're praying that they would go out and saturate the city in a few a few minutes, we're going to baptize nine people, right? Woohoo! We're going to pray over them, and we're going to commission them to do what? To go make more disciples. Why? Because the people of God are ascent people. It's in our DNA. It's in our spiritual DNA. As Jesus rebirths us and brings us into his family, he brings us into his family as the sent people of God. Uh, the language that we use for this around here at West Village is we call ourselves missionaries. We say that because we have been rebirth because we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, we are actually the missional people of God. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a second, because I think this is really important for us to get. Like, if there's one thing I want you to hear this morning, it's that you are a sent people. You are a missionary. Think about the city that we live in, the city of Victoria. We talk about this all the time. We're never going to stop talking about it. One of the least church cities in North America, between 3 and 5% of our city identifies as a follower of Jesus. This morning as we gather here, there's roughly 10,000 people gathering in a church somewhere, which is, sounds like a lot, but in a city of 400,000 people, it's not very many people. The reality is this morning when most of our city woke up, the question they were not asking was, is there a church I could go to? Is there a church that resonates with me? Is there some place I can go to worship Jesus? In the same way you didn't wake up this morning and ask the question, I wonder if there's a mosque where I could go worship Allah. I wonder if there's a Sikh temple I could go to. That's, that's where things are at in the city of Victoria. As crazy as it would be for you to look for a mosque, that's what it would be like for your unchurched, your non-Christian friend or neighbor to, 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 to start to look for a church. It's not on the radar They're not thinking about it. Now, if you were to go to a mosque or a Sikh temple, how how would you go about doing this? You would probably find somebody who goes to one. 
you would probably say, hey, can you take me? Because I don't know the language. I don't know where it is. I don't know when you meet. I don't know what to do when you meet. I don't know the, 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 the culture. I don't know the rules. I don't know anything about it because it's so foreign to me. That's the state of, the, state of affairs here in the city of Victoria. So Jesus is saying here, like, I, I, I've taught you what the kingdom is. I've demonstrated what the kingdom is. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, no, sit there and just hope they show up. Have hot bands and funny, good-looking preachers and just, and just hope that they show up. They're not coming. Like, listen, the only people that walk through the door here, for the most part, no, but by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, are church folks. Church has grown a lot in the last eight years. Praise God, we're super pumped about that. We've seen a lot of people meet Jesus. Praise God, we're super pumped about that. But nine times out of ten, and believe me, this is what I do on Sunday morning. I preach and I sit out in the lobby and look for new people. That's what I do. When I meet a new person, they're almost always from another church. And that's, we're pumped you're here if you're from another church. We want to train you to be a missionary if you're here from another church. But generally speaking, people that don't know Jesus aren't coming to a thing on Sunday. And so what Jesus says is, I want you to go. I want you to go. I want you to start to think of yourself as a missionary. I want you to start to ask different questions about what it looks like to live in your city, right? We, we've used this analogy before, but uh, if, if you wear glasses, then when you take your glasses off, like, I, it's all, I don't know, I can't see anything when I take my glasses off. I'm blind. I'm old, and I can't see. Being a missionary is like this. It's like taking a set of glasses and putting them on, and you start to see everything differently. Right? Church isn't an event you attend. It's not a thing you do. Mission isn't an event you attend. It's not a thing you do. It's who you are. Now, all of life gets filtered through the lens of what it means to be a missionary. So now you start to ask questions like, well, if I'm a missionary, how is that going to inform how I eat? If I'm a missionary, how is that going to inform how I live my life, how I cut my grass, how I shop for groceries, how I drive my car what I do with my kids, how I spend my time, everything gets filtered through the lens of what it means to be a missionary. It changes and transforms all of your reality. And what Jesus is saying, you people, followers of mine, you're the sent people of God. I, I have this list of things that I, I pray for. It's 21 things I'm praying God will do before I die. And maybe one day I'll share those with you. Uh, but today I'll share one with you. My, my prayer is that for our church, that every single year, every single one of us would lead one person to Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Every single year, every single one of us would make one disciple. One. Like sometimes we can get so fixated on like how many people don't know Jesus, it gets overwhelming. It's like, it's kind of like the global warming thing. It's like, I don't even know what to do, so I'm just going to drive my SUV and put my recycling in the garbage can and whatever. What difference can I make? But what if we just started to do small things differently? What if we moved our barbecue from the backyard to the front yard? Andrew and Shannon... Andrew was just sharing this morning that they moved their patio chairs from the backyard to the front yard, and they've stopped watching some Netflix in the evening, and they've just started hanging out on their front lawn with their cute baby and their cute dog, and the neighbors come by and stop and talk. Why? Because they're missionaries. They're just doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So what would it look like for us to start living like that? Well, Jesus, in his kindness, he starts to actually give us some instructions on this. So look at what it says here. Then the 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions, right? He's actually going to inform us on what this looks like. He's going to give us our marching orders. Look at what he says here in the second half of verse 5. Do not, this is a weird way to start, do not go out among the Gentiles, or enter any town of the Samaritans, verse 6, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, so this is good. This should confuse you. If you've been here, you should be going like, okay, this, this doesn't make sense. I thought Jesus was all about the outsider. And here he tells us not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans. Who are the Gentiles and the Samaritans? They're the outsiders. Okay, 
But in the healing passages that we just read in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus was always going for the outsider. He was going after the leper. He was going after the, the centurion, the Roman, the irreligious. He was rebuking the religious Pharisees. And now he's telling us to do the opposite. So, like, wh- like what's going on, Jesus? Like, you forget to take your meds? Like, help us out here. We, need, we don't get it. Okay, let me, give you, let me just give you a couple things here, okay? Let me give you two things that I think might help make sense of this. The first one is this. This is a theological reality. So when, when we take a step back and look at the overarching story of God, here, here's what we see, that God's heart, you need to hear this, God's heart always has been and always will be for the nations, okay? God, God's always wanted every single man, woman, and child to know who he is. Again, if you go back to the Genesis uh, mandate, the creation mandate that he gives to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. He wants the earth filled with his image bearers who worship him and know him. So that's the beginning of the story of God, pre-Genesis 3, pre-sin, pre-brokenness entering in. And the story ends, Revelation chapter 19 through 21, we get this picture at the end of the story of God. And, and what's that picture? It's a picture of every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne, worshiping Jesus, honoring Jesus, loving Jesus, declaring him worthy. And so, so we, we know that God's heart isn't for one nation. It isn't for one skin color. It isn't for one ethnicity. It isn't for one people. It's for all people, all times, all places. But for some reason, and we are not going to be privy to the answer to these questions this side of eternity. Only God knows these things. This is what the apostle Paul calls the secret things. There's some things we're just not going to know until we get to heaven and God reveals them to us. In God's wisdom, he decided after Genesis 3, after brokenness entered into the world, and God's desire has always been to restore things back to the way they were in the garden, he saw fit through the nation of Israel to bring about his redemption. And so this is why you have this interesting relationship between God and the nation of Israel. The entire Old Testament is God starting to do a work through the nation of Israel to bring about what? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what God wants to do to restore the world. And so what Jesus is saying here to to his disciples as he sends them out on mission, it's not ignore everyone else. Because even as we get further into Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he's going to start to, he's going to, start to put on display uh, his heart for the nations, right? Matthew chapter 28, when, when the gospel of Matthew ends, what's he say? He says, go make disciples of who? Of the Israelites? No, of, of all the nations, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit comes when the Holy, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will testify to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So we know God's heart is for the nations, but there's this sense here in which God wants to honor the work that his father started. He wants to give the nation of Israel an opportunity to respond to who he is. But as we know, this story goes where this story goes. Spoiler alert if you're new to church, but Jesus is going to go to the cross, and who's going to send him to the cross? It's the nation of Israel. They're going to reject him. They're going to crucify him. They're going to have him killed. They're going, to, they're going to put him to death because they don't believe he is the means by which God wants to save the earth. And so there's a theological reason for which Jesus says this. But, but I think, and, and I don't think this is, this is conjecture, okay? Full disclosure, this is conjecture. This is just Chris talking about what Chris thinks here. Might be some practical implications to this verse, but I think they stand to reason. There's a reality here that Jesus is sending the 12 into an environment in which it is going to be less hostile and more friendly to share the gospel, to share the truth of the kingdom. Jesus was Jewish. The 12 disciples were Jewish. There was a common language. They had a common religious context from which to share the truths of Jesus into. And so I think, I don't know, but I think that there's a sense here in which this is actually the kindness of God. He's sending them to a people who are familiar to him, to them. That they, that they could actually talk about the gospel in such a way that it would, that would actually make sense. It would resonate. It would land. That instead of starting with, hey, go reach everybody, hey, let's start here. And sometimes I think for us, correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we can hear this idea of gospel saturation. A city that doesn't know Jesus it can get so overwhelming that we start to, again, we, we start to get to this place where it's like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to, I don't know how to talk about Jesus like Cam was saying. I don't even know what words to use. I don't even know who God's calling me to. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, when he's in Athens and he's preaching at the, uh, the uh, Arabagus, he, he says, in Acts chapter 17, he says that God has ordained the times and places that each man has lived 
so that those who are around him would seek him, find him, and reach out for him and come to know who he is. And I think for us, there's a lesson here that is, where's God placed you? Where is there already common interest? Where is there already an ability to just have a conversation with someone? Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's where you recreate or play. Maybe it's where your kids are involved in a sport. Like I can, you know, like for us right now in our lives, one of the things that's really big in our world is, is basketball. All my boys play basketball. I coach basketball. And when we made the decision to kind of go down this road, one of the conversations we had to have was like, is this going to take us off mission? And it was a serious conversation. Like I legitimately brought this decision before the elders and the staff and my wife to say like, should I coach basketball? Because it's a time commitment. It's an investment. And there, there were some really good things about it, like connecting with my kids. It's a good, you know, just relational outlet for me and it's a hobby outlet. That's good. Those aren't bad things. But if they take me off the mission of Jesus, which is the primal thing, then they're not good things. And so the word back to me was, okay, but you need to leverage these relationships. For and so by God's grace, I'm doing these things because this is where God's placed me with gospel intentionality. I was just talking to Nat this morning. I'm trying to figure out how, how do I appropriately share the gospel with a bunch of high school students that I'm, that I'm coaching? How do I appropriately share the gospel with, with other, you know, adults that I'm coaching with? How do I invest in them? How do I? So we've started having people into our home. We started building relationships with these people. Just a couple weeks ago, we had the guy who's helping me coach came over to my house for an evening and we hung out late at night on the patio, had some really good conversations. Because that's where God's placed me. So, so the question for us is, where's God placed us? It's easy to get overwhelmed with reaching the nations, but maybe God's just asking you to reach your neighbor. Maybe he's just asking you to, like, not put your earbuds in on the bus and talk to the person that you're riding next to. And what God wants you to do is be the sent people of God. What he wants us to do is be the sent people of God. So where has he called you to? Who has he called you to? In verse 6, here's what he says, or verse 7, sorry. Here's what he says. As you go, so you're the sent people of God. So as you go, here's what I want you to say. Because you're like, okay, now what do I do? What do I say? I don't know what to say. That's great. I took my earbuds out. I'm talking to the guy on the bus about whatever. Now, what do I say? Well, Jesus is like, I got the answer for you. Here's the answer. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Then verse 8, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, and freely you have received, freely you give. There you go. Okay, that's all you got to do. Go preach. The kingdom of heaven is near, and heal the sick, raise the dead. Let's pray. What? This is crazy, okay? So Jesus says, as you go, preach, proclaim. What's he, what's he talking about? He's talking about heralding, heralding the good news. We, we have to wrap our minds around this for just a second. Preaching in the New Testament is not primarily done from a stage with lights and a microphone, okay? This isn't how preaching is done most of the time. If you go through the book of Acts, I encourage you, read it and ask yourself, every time you hear someone preach, ask yourself this question, were they standing in a church gathering? Were they standing in front of a group of Christians? Uh, were, they wearing a, were they wearing a microphone? Was it this kind of setting? Were they on a stage? No, most of the time it was outside of the church. See, the Spirit of God works in the church, but then the Spirit of God works through the church, and the goal is always to take the gospel out to the city. And so we have to kind of break down these paradigms because we have these ideas in our mind of what preaching is, and it's this. And you're like, I could never do what that guy's doing. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do this at work. I couldn't stand up in the lunchroom and, and just open my Bible. Go, okay, everybody, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10. I would get fired. I, well, that's, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need to be a heralder, a proclaimer, a speaker of good news. And notice what he says here. Look at what he says. Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This has been the sermon that Jesus has been preaching. He's preaching much shorter sermons than we preach here at West Village. They're one-liners. It's what he says in Matthew chapter 4. It's what he says later in Matthew's gospel. It's what he's going to continue to preach. The kingdom of heaven has come near. What, what does this mean for us? Well, Dallas Willard has, makes, draws a helpful distinction, I think, in how he talks about the gospel. He says there's two ways we can think about the gospel. There's the gospel of atonement, and there's the gospel of the kingdom. 
The gospel of atonement is not necessarily wrong. It's not bad theology. It's just not full enough. It's, it's in a sense, it's shallow. The gospel of atonement sounds something like this. You're a sinner. You're going to die and you're going to spend eternity apart from God. And you need to pray this prayer. You need to believe a certain set of theological facts that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. And then when you die, you can go to heaven. Now, those things, I just want to be clear, those things are true. Those statements, those theological propositions are true propositions. But there's a sense in when we share the gospel that that God's only concerned with the afterlife. He's only concerned not about this life, but what happens to us after we die. And what what Dallas Willard is trying to help us understand in, in his distinction here is that there's actually a more fuller picture of the gospel. That the gospel of the kingdom isn't just about our our eternity, isn't just about our afterlife. It isn't just about God wanting to heal our souls or save our souls, but that he wants to heal and save us in the here and now. That there's degrees of brokenness in our life right now that if we would humble ourselves, if we would submit to King Jesus, if we would see his way as better than our way, that he could actually start to bring healing and wholeness to our lives right now in this moment. See, see, most of the hardship, most of the brokenness we experience in our lives are a result of either ourselves or someone else not living as if Jesus is king, but living as if we are king. And so the gospel of the kingdom is, is saying, like, well, what would it look like to start to bring our finances under the lordship of Christ? What would it look like to start bringing our marriage under the lordship of Christ? What would it look like to start bringing our relationships under the lordship of Christ? What would it look like to start bringing our homes, everything underneath the lordship of Christ? What would it look like to bring even our pain, even our hurt, even the things that have been done to us, under the lordship of Christ, that he might enter into those broken places and bring healing. I was sharing about, earlier about a friend that came over and we were having this conversation out on the patio and and he just started to share some of the pain points in his life, some of the hardships he's had in relationships with his parents. And interestingly enough, my wife gone through similar things. So Kelly was sitting there and we were listening. And as I was listening to him share his story, I I thought to myself, oh man, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And I just felt like, oh, you know, like this is, it's probably too soon to just start dropping gospel, gospel bombs here. So I'm just going to listen and be a good missionary and listen to his story. and, And maybe God's grace will open up an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel at some point. And he, he says to us, he goes like, what do you guys do with this stuff? And here I am, you know, I'm going to be all nice and sensitive. And Kelly just jumps right in, right? She just goes for it. If you know her, she looks nice. She looks sweet, but she's a bulldog. He's like, you need Jesus. And she just went on to share how, like right now, as many of you know, my wife's walking through some hard things with her family. Her mom has uh, stage four cancer. And it's, there's just, a, you know, when you go through this stuff, as we're learning and many of you, many of you have gone before us have learned, like it just brings up all kinds of stuff, right? All kinds of hurt, all kinds of pain. And Kelly didn't say, well, you know, you just need to like repent of your sin and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and then you're going to go to heaven when you die and everything will be all better. She said, yeah, it's hard. And I've had to, I've had to come to Jesus and actually, like, recognize that, that his love is better than the love that I'm seeking elsewhere. That his love can actually heal me, can actually satisfy me, can actually sustain me in the midst of all this hardship and brokenness that I'm walking through. See, the gospel's bigger than just your afterlife. The gospel's all about your here and now. It's all about bringing restoration and redemption into every aspect of your life, including your afterlife. And so Jesus is inviting us to call people into this beautiful space where 
where the kingdom comes to bear on their life and it can actually change and transform them. Friends, the gospel's good news. Did you know that? Did you know that? God actually cares about you. He loves you. He wants to heal you. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. And so Jesus says the message of the mission is kingdom of heaven is at near. And look at what he says next. Verse 8, we've already read this, but I'll come back to it here. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, for freely you have received and freely you give. There's a lot here. And I, I don't have time to do this text justice, but here, here's what I would say, just in brief. For many of you, especially on a day like today where many of you are here to celebrate with your friends who are getting baptized, maybe this is your first time ever in a church gathering, and you hear this stuff and you're like, what is going on? Right? This is the kind of stuff that maybe even turns you off of Christianity, turns you off of any kind of understanding of a relationship with God because you've rejected the supernatural. And so you think, you hear a text like this and you say, this is hocus pocus. I mean, I don't have time. I don't have time to like make an apologetic for the supernatural this morning. Uh, but, but here's what I would say is don't, don't let your predisposed worldview impact your ability to hear what Jesus is saying. here. See, we all come in here with, with a worldview that shapes how we view everything. We all come in here with a set of presuppositions that inform how we view the world and how we see uh, truth and how we evaluate things. And here, here's what I would say to you. Just doubt your doubts, right? You hear this verse and you kind of reject Christianity out of hand. And I would say apply the same rigors and scrutiny to the worldview that you hold. Is really the, the naturalistic way of viewing the world, the secular way of viewing the world, the only way uh, to arbiter truth? Uh, I don't think so. There's all kinds of truth claims that fall outside of what we can taste, see, and touch. But, but here's what I would say about these verses is, is here at West Village, we believe these things can still happen. We believe that the Spirit of God can still work. There's kind of a couple of camps when it comes to the supernatural working in the Bible. There's what I would call the hyper-charismatics, right? These are the guys, they always have crazy eyes. I don't know why they've always got crazy eyes. There's probably a good reason for it, but they got crazy eyes. Uh, they're on television for some reason. They're asking you to send them 1995. And they'll send you a hanky. They'll ask you to reach out and touch the screen. And they'll heal you through the television. And there's a sense in which, you know, they think that every Christian, all time, all places, should experience healing. And I just think that is a, a real abuse of the Scriptures. There's another extreme position, I guess you would call it the hyper-conservative position. This would be the cessationist position. That's the theological term. And it's just this idea that, that after the writing of the New Testament, that the Spirit of God no longer spoke and, and no longer worked, that those supernatural workings were for a particular time in a particular place, and they have now ceased, hence the term cessationist. We would say that probably both of those positions are not adequate and don't do a good job of making sense of what we see here in the Bible. And so we would say we fall somewhere in the middle. I don't know where in the middle, but we fall, fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, we, we often describe ourselves around here as charismatic. We believe the Spirit of God works, but we wear a seatbelt, which means we ain't going to be rolling around in the house <laughs> picking up what I'm throwing down, okay? But we believe the Spirit of God can still work. We believe that God can still do miracles. We believe that the Holy Spirit wants to change people, wants to transform people, wants to make much of Jesus, wants to work in and through people's lives. But we don't believe that it's going to be all the time. We believe that some of these supernatural things, oftentimes they get perversed and, and man becomes the hero. It, be, it becomes about us. It becomes about what we need, what we want, or, or being able to demonstrate that we can exercise power. And what we believe is that when the Spirit of God works, it always makes much of Jesus. Doesn't make much of us. So here, I'll show, like we've had people say to me and to our leadership here, this is not a Spirit-filled church. Here's what I would say to that. The greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that I know of is nine people getting baptized today. That's, that's nine people dying to their old self and being me, made reborn. 
by the power of the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God at work changing and transforming people. But here's the point. Here's what I want you to see, is that, that Jesus wants us to preach a kingdom and a gospel of wholeness, and he wants us to live a life of, of wholeness, where the way that we live is a reflection of the gospel that we believe and that all of our life is coming under submission of the Lordship of Christ. And we start to live out the gospel that is changing and transforming us. Okay, Jesus goes on. Here's what he says, uh, picking up verse 9. Okay, we're going to read a bunch of verses here. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to send you out. You're going to, you're going to be the sent people of God. You're going to preach and proclaim the kingdom. You're going to, you're going to perform miracles. You're going to, you're going to live out Jesus' mission in the everyday. You're going, to, you're going to be a pointer to the kingdom of God. But I want you to go now. Don't wait around. Don't collect money. Don't, you know, get all your stuff together. Just go. And there's a couple of things Jesus wants us to see here. The first one is this. He's the one who calls us to be on mission, right? That's what he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who empowers us. He's going to provide for us. So some of us are wondering, like, how, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to afford it. I don't know how I'm going to live it. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have the right gifts. Jesus is saying, don't worry about that stuff. I got your back, right? If I can, if I can be, be crucified and three days later raised from the grave, I can figure out how to empower you, equip you, call you, and give you everything you need for mission. Well, there's something else here. We can't miss this. This is so woven into all of Matthew chapter 10. We're going to see it. We're going to keep bumping up against it. It's that there is an intense urgency to the mission. There's an intense urgency to what Jesus is calling us to. See, what he's saying is don't don't stop collect all of your stuff, and then go. He's saying, just go. In other words, it's kind of like when he, when he calls the disciples earlier in Matthew's gospel, and they just leave their nets, and they come and follow him. It's, it's like what he's going to say later uh, in Matthew's gospel, where he's like, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. See, Jesus, what he's saying here to us is that the mission is more important than anything else. And whatever stuff you have, whatever things you hold on to, the mission is more important. The mission has to be the number one thing in your life, driving all other things, similar to a set of glasses. Every decision you make now gets filtered through the lens of the mission of Jesus. So so let me just ask us some questions. And these are in no way intended to offend, hurt, critique your life. You know they're going to be great questions when you preface them with that, right? This is between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm going to just guess that we don't struggle with sandals and tunics, right? I don't even know what a tunic is. I'm not into fashion. But does the mission determine what sports activities your kids are in? When you decide what sports activities you're going to put your kids in, is the first question you ask, how is this going to enhance or impede our ability to fulfill the mission that Jesus has called us to? If a disciple is submitting all of their life to the Lordship of Christ... Do our kids' activities, sports, is that a part of it? How we spend our money is the first question we ask. Is it about the mission? When we're buying a house, is the first question we ask, how is this going to help or hurt our ability to be on mission? You know, She's not going to like this. I'm just going to call Carrie out. She's sitting right here in the front row. Call her out in a good way. Don't worry. We were hanging out with them. Uh, Matt and I were hanging out with Nathan and Carrie this week, Matt, one of the elders here, and we were just having a conversation about some things. And Carrie's parents are trying to move over here to buy a house with Nathan and Carrie because they have like 17 kids and they live in a basement suite and her parents want to be on mission. So Nathan's going to have to live with his in-laws, sorry. Um, They're great people. I love them. But we were talking about different housing opportunities and things like that. And Carrie 
said to me, and she again, she did not ask me to share this, and she is going to be mad at me for doing so, but I'm going to do it because I want to honor the work of Jesus in their life. She said, the first thing we do is we find out if it's on any major bus routes. Is it accessible by bus? Now, that would make sense if Nathan and Carrie didn't drive, but they do. Her parents drive. So why bus routes? Well, because the people that they're on mission with in their community group and the people that they're on mission And so they wanted to make sure that those people would be able to have access to whatever house that they're living in so that they can open their home so that they can use it for mission. So the first question wasn't, is it in a nice neighborhood? It wasn't, how big is the backyard? Does the master have a nice ensuite? Is this enough square footage for us? It was, Lord Jesus, this house is yours. It's yours. And we want to use it for your mission. So let me, let me just ask us, do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The uh, Screwtape Letters. Fantastic read. And it's, uh, it's a book where two demons are corresponding about the best way by which to tempt the Christian, to, to keep them from, from true followership of Jesus. And in that book, he writes this, and we've read this quote before. Remember, this is from one demon to another about a Christian. C.S. Lewis says, he says, if on the other hand, the middle years of a Christian's life prove to be prosperous, our position as tempters is even stronger. Here's why. Because prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. Well, really, it is finding its place in him. The Christian's increasing reputation widening circle of acquaintances, sense of importance, growing sense of uh, pressure, of absorbing an agreeable work, building up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. Climbing the corporate ladder, trying to get a promotion, looking forward to retirement. That's what he's talking about here. You will notice that the young, the 20-somethings, are generally less unwilling to die than the middle age and the old. The truth is the enemy, talking about God, having oddly destined these mere animals to life in his own eternal world, has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. This is why we must often wish a long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up in them a firm attachment to the earth. It's crazy. You know, this week we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I don't know this to be a fact, but this is just what I understand of what took place in that time. Who were the ones who were willing to sign up to give up their lives to storm the beaches of Normandy. The 20-year-olds. Because they had nothing to lose. Some of us have built up such awesome lives. We have so much to lose. Our reputations, our wealth, our nest egg, our home, our families, that we couldn't imagine giving it up for Jesus and his mission. And what Jesus is warning us against here, it's not, it's not about owning stuff. It's about your stuff owning you. Jesus says, be careful. He goes on, I hate to move on so quickly from that because it's heavy. I apologize, but I need to keep moving. Verses 11 and on. Whatever town, village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. 
if the home is deserving, or he'll later use the word worthy, uh, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone is not welcome, if anyone does not, will not welcome you, sorry, or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake off the dust of your feet. Uh, what's Jesus saying here? Again, giving us some instructions for what it looks like to be on mission. He's saying there's some people who are going to be leaning in, and there's some people who aren't. So if you find someone who's leaning into mission, that's what we call at Westfield, we call that low-bearing fruit. <laughs> Pursue them. Go after them. Invest in them. Start to reorient your life around them. But be aware, Jesus says, because there's going to be some people who seem like they're open, but they're not open. They're not actually wanting to have relationship with you. And he uses that word worthy person. He's not talking about worthy in the sense of worthy of hearing the gospel. He's not talking about worthy as a person. What he's saying is they're not actually interested. They're hard-hearted. They, they ask questions, but they don't really want answers, right? They, you'll sit with them, and you'll answer question after question after question after question, but they're, they're not really wanting to know your answers. They're not really wanting to know Jesus. They're just wanting to have a conversation for the sake of having a conversation. And, and again, hear this with, with Jesus' words. He's saying there, there's an urgency here. There's an urgency to the mission, and so don't waste your time that sounds really harsh, okay? I understand. It sounds really harsh. Like, don't waste your time with people who aren't open to hear the gospel. Love everyone. Serve everyone. Bless everyone. Invite everyone into your home. Be with everyone. But be mindful of those who are open. If you go back to chapter 9, right at the end of chapter 9, he says, the harvest is plentiful. There are people who are ready to receive the gospel. So invest your time in those people. Pour your time into those people. Love everyone. Serve everyone. God's heart is for every single person. But just be aware of the fact that there are some people who, as they lean in, you lean back, and they will respond. But then notice what he says here. In verse 14, at the very end, he says, shake the dust off of your feet. And then look at what he says in verse 15. And I'll just be brutally honest. I wanted to stop at verse 14 this morning. Because this is a heavy verse, but look at what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So, so Jesus says, go, share the gospel, preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal, see the kingdom come to bear, see people come to faith in Jesus, see the, the, the Spirit of God do amazing things. There's going to be some people who are going to respond to the gospel. There's going to be other people who don't respond to the gospel. And then, and then this is what he says. And again, like I, I've agonized over this all week this morning. Like uh, you got to understand here, like I'm, I'm, I want to be honest with the Word of God. I don't, as I say all the time, I don't write the mail. I just deliver the mail. But at the same time, I, I love you. I love us. But I want to tell the truth. So, so what is Jesus saying here? Well, if Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know your Bible, Genesis chapter 19, there was a group of people who had rejected God, rejected his ways. And God brought holy and divine judgment upon them. He destroyed them. So, so notice what he's saying here. Again, I'm not making this stuff up. Put your eyes on the screen or in your Bible. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town, for those people who reject Jesus. Why? Why, Jesus? This, I don't understand. I mean, that's what I asked when I read this this week. Sure, that's what you're asking. Jesus is the one who called the disciples. Jesus is the one who empowered the disciples. Jesus is the one who sent and equipped the disciples. And it's the kingdom of Jesus that they were preaching. So in Genesis 19 for Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't have the full revelation that Jesus is sending these disciples out with. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. If you reject me, if you choose to reject me, then you don't get me. 
He's not going to make you have him or follow him. He's, he's not going to make you be his disciple. C.S. Lewis again says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly deserves, desires rather joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is open. See, Jesus is inviting us. Come. Come and experience the fullness of my kingdom. Come and experience so much more than just a soul going to heaven when you die. Come and experience healing, wholeness, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love unending, the fullness of the kingdom of God in your life made manifest right now. The Spirit of God, He wants to give that to us. But He will not force your hand. And so my invitation to all of us, wherever we're at this morning, is to ask the question, do I want that? Do I want the fullness of kingdom in my life? Do I want Jesus? Because he wants you, friends. He wants you. And I want us to hear the urgency here. There's an urgency to what Jesus calls us to. As we've already said, we're the sent people of God, sent into the city of Victoria, one of the least church cities. These are neighbors, your coworkers, classmates, friends. They need to know. They need to know. Invite the band to come up. I've wrestled with how to close this because I don't want to end here. I just don't. Man, sometimes my job sucks. So here's where I'm going to end. I'm going to end with a question. And I think woven into the answer of this question, there's actually hope. How can Jesus say these things? Right? I mean, that, that's a good question. If you're like, never been to church before, that's it, I'm out. I knew it. Hellfire and brimstone, first time I come, look at that. I'm out. I'm done. I tap. You've, you've completely satisfied uh, every stereotype I had conjured up in my mind about what church was about. I'm never coming back again. Hang with me for just a second. How can Jesus say these things? Because he's God. He's God. What's interesting here, right? If you go back to, you don't have to put these verses on the screen, but if you go back to the beginning where he says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, because I first want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. So he goes to the lost sheep of Israel, and what happens? It's the nation of Israel that does what to Jesus? They crucify him. They, they have him murdered. Innocent man, condemned, guilty, sent to the cross. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. Found guilty for something he has not done. There's no blame that should be attributed to him. There's, there's no guile in his mouth. He, he in every way, is good. He came to love. He came to serve. He, he came to help. He came to heal. And they had him killed. And he's hanging on the cross. And, and he looks out at, at his mockers. He looks out at his accusers. He looks out at his condemners. He looks out at those who have, have scorned him and hurt him and are, are literally taking his life. And he doesn't say, 
God, give them what they deserve. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the same God who can say it will be worse for those of us who reject Jesus on that day than for Sodom and Gomorrah is the same God who, when hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what I don't want you to miss is that God is gracious, loving, kind, and compassionate. And it is never too late to come to him. It is never too late to humble yourself. Receive his grace and mercy. Is he just? Yeah, he's just. Is he loving, gracious, and kind? He is that and so much more, friends. So much more. And so the invitation to us, if we're here this morning and we're not followers of Jesus, is to humble ourselves, come to Jesus. And I would just invite you to do that this morning. But if we're here this morning and we know Jesus and we love Jesus and we serve Jesus, it's to recognize that there is a great urgency. Life is too short. It is too short to give our lives to early retirements, walks on the beach, square footage, and zeros in the bank account. And Jesus invites us in the same way to come to him and to lay those things down and to live a life for his mission, for his purpose, and for his glory. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord Jesus, we need you. There is not a person in this room, including myself, who does not desperately need you. Would you come in this moment and reveal yourself to us? Lord, we thank you that you are alive and well. We thank you that you are working. We thank you that your, your spirit is moving in our church and moving in our lives, and there's so much we can celebrate and so much that we can be thankful for, and we pray for more. We jealously want more of you, more of your spirit to work in our lives, more of your spirit to work in our church, more of your spirit to work through our lives and through our church and in our city. And so, Lord, we humbly ask that you would do more than we could ever hope or imagine. And in this moment, as we worship, as we take communion in response, would we see you in all your fullness and all your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Man, I invite you to stand. Nathan will lead us in response.